Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this episode of Pubs, Pints, People. I'm Claire Phillips. My co-presenters today are Paul Grant and a new voice to the podcast, Simon Webster. So, Paul, hello. How are you? Doing very well. Good to be back in the UK and on UK time again. Um, I was away abroad for the first time in forever, so that's been quite nice. Wow, um, um, I haven't even been away yet, so uh, so well done you. And Simon? <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Um, I've listened to pretty much every episode of Pops, Pints, People since episode one, series one. So it's a pleasure to be on the other side of the microphone today. Well, it's it's absolutely great to have you here. And we knew somebody must be listening. So uh, great to have you on the team, Simon. And we're talking about ale and steam today, which is that wonderful relationship between beer and railways. The two really do seem to go hand in hand. And of course, there's always some excellent pubs to be found either in or nearby, sometimes even on the very platform of uh, major train stations and sometimes smaller train stations as well. And, and of course, railway workers always played their part in supporting Britain's thriving pubs. I'm a big fan of the breweries that have taken over these spaces in Railway Arches, beer festivals that take place on trains and on the platforms. And yeah, beer ticking and train ticking have sort of spilled over into one another for some enthusiasts. Okay, before we go much further, though, I feel like we might need to explain train ticking. It's where you'd see people standing on the platforms of big stations like Crewe or Derby and ticking off the serial numbers of trains in what I'm led to believe is called a local shed book. Yeah, I don't know a great deal about train ticking, but I do know a bit more about keeping track of beers that you've sampled. And there's obviously apps like Tap Hunter or Untapped. Do either of you use apps like that? I use Untapped for personal records anyway, keeping a track of where, what I've drank and where I've drank, but I'm not so fussed about the chasing element of it. Me neither. I, I use Untapped to check the beer menus at some pubs before I actually go and visit them. I find it very handy from that perspective. Yeah, I, I tend to, to do the same. Or if I've been to a, a pub and I know the name of the beer, but I didn't clock which brewery it was, I tend to look on Untapped for, for that sort of thing. I suppose I do tick off more beers if I'm at a beer festival and you get the the list of the beers there and you're, you're going through and you know putting a tick by some of them and a cross by the ones you never want to drink again in your life 
and that sort of thing. And we'll be finding out more about beer ticking later on with beer writer Des Demur, and we'll be sitting down with two camera beer festival organisers to learn more about some railway-themed beer f- events taking place around the country later this year. But first, we have to acknowledge that it's May, and therefore both Mild and Cider Month. For those who don't know, camera celebrates the beer styles known as Mild and the cider style known as uh, Cider throughout the month of May to give special prominence and support to these two products. Yeah, I absolutely love mild and um, I I must admit I don't just drink it in May but I'm really pleased that Camera does support traditional beer styles and May is designated as mild month and Camera branches across the country work to celebrate and highlight the, the beer style of mild which not that long ago was under the threat almost of extinction due to a, a popularity compared to some of the new styles and I think just people thought it didn't have the right image I guess. Mild is a beer style that evolved towards the end of the 18th century, early 19th century as drinkers asked for a slightly sweeter and less aggressively hot beer than porters. Early miles were much stronger than modern versions that we see today which tend to fall into the 3.5% to 5, 3.5% category though a number of brewers are bringing strength back into the style. Mild is dark in colour due to the use of well-roasted malts or roasted barley. Look for a rich, malty aroma and flavour with hints of dark fruit, chocolate, coffee and caramel with a gentle hop bitterness. Doing our bit to help revive the mild beer style, camera branches encourage local pubs to have at least one mild on the hand pumps during the month of May and some branches organise trips to pubs and breweries that embrace and support the beer style. You may also find either your local camera branch or a local trade association organising a mild trail across your local area that includes pubs where you can be sure to find a nice pint of mild. In this year, 2022, I find it really interesting that a number of so-called craft breweries have been specialising in in mild. And there's been a number that have generated uh, quite a range of uh, publicity for the milds that they have been brewing. And they seem to have been very well received by beer drinkers across the country. To give you some further inspiration for Mild Month, we're going to hear from Simon Theakston, who's the managing director of Theakston's Brewery in North Yorkshire. And Theakston's is once again brewing its traditional recipe, Dark Mild, in wooden casks this May, especially for Mild Month. It's one of Theakston's original recipes. It dates back as far as 1837. And Simon can tell us more about the beer himself. Hi, I'm Simon Theakston, Joint Managing Director of TNR Theakston Limited. I'm delighted to let you know that we're once again brewing our classic cast Dark Mild, happily coinciding with the Camera Mild Months of May campaign. Mild as a beer style is one of the oldest in British brewing. As its name suggests, Theakston's Dark Mild is mild, but only in terms of alcohol and not mild in flavour. In fact, the superb taste of our Dark Mild is driven by the use of three top quality malts, pale for body, crystal for rich flavour and black malt for texture and taste. We combined these three with a complex but subtle infusion of Progress and Challenger, Bittering Hops and the majestic Fuggle Fruit Hop. Dixon Dark Mild is almost certainly one of the original two or three beers brewed by my great-great-grandfather Robert Theakston when he first started brewing here in Massam in 1827. We have brewed it ever since. For several recent years, the demand for our cast version, in line with the market in general for cast miles, declined, although our keg version, first brewed in the mid-1970s, has provided the unbroken link with our dark mild brewing going back the 195 years to our founding moment. As a beer style, mild was very popular in Britain before the last war, but since then it has been overshadowed by the growth in popularity of lighter ales and lagers. 
In even more recent years, the explosion of microbrewing and new beer styles has paradoxically rekindled interest in what I would call the foundation beer styles of bitter and mild beers. We recognise this and therefore have decided that this is the perfect time to once again introduce the cast version of our dark mild. As to whether we make this mild once again a permanent feature of our portfolio will depend on our customers as they ultimately determine what we brew. Quite often in brewing, things tend to come round again. I'm very optimistic that because of the wonderful characteristics of our dark mild and the changing shape of the beer style demand in the UK, that we may be at the dawn of a new mild revolution. So let me raise my glass of delicious dark mild to you all and wish you a very happy mild month of May. Can't get much more than traditional than that, eh? It's great to see the cask version of this beer coming back, for the moment at least. It's interesting to hear what Simon was saying about beer styles coming in and out of fashion and a renewed interest in milds. I'm actually wondering if mild could be a sort of gateway beer towards the stouts and porters that seem to be very popular in real ale circles at, at the moment. Claire, I think uh, I've heard you mention in previous episodes how you're also a fan of stouts and porters. Yeah, we've had complaints, well not complaints, we've had um, people commenting before when I've said I like a stout or a porter, particularly in the winter, um, and you know it's been pointed out to me that stouts and porters are for all the year round, as indeed golden beers are for the winter as well as the summer. Matter of opinion, I think, but I tend to drink them more in the winter. I love them, really nice sort of cold winter's night, you settle down with a, a pint of, of stout or, or porter, some lovely chocolatey ones about, so yeah, I, I'd like milds as well. And just thinking of the flavours of, of some of those stouts and porters they can be really strong you know maybe too strong for some people so, so mild may be on the point of rediscovering its original purpose which was as a sweeter and less hoppy version of stouts and porters I, I'd certainly recommend anyone to, to try them if you like what you taste then it's up to us as beer drinkers to, to keep the momentum going it really is consumer power in action and as well as it being mild month, May is also Cider and Perry month for Camera. Camera supports and campaigns for Cider and Perry throughout the year, but we spotlight these styles twice a year in May and October. Our local branches organise Cider and Perry events all across the country. Unlike real ale production, which can happen any time of the year, real cider and perry is generally a seasonal product and can only be made when the fruit is ripe. Production is tied to the natural cycles of the apple and pear trees found in orchards across the country. And interestingly, May was chosen because that's when the orchards come into bloom and the fruit begins to set. And it's also when cider and perry production from the previous year reaches maturity and can start to be enjoyed. And of course, it's a time for celebration of the fruits of the cider and perry makers' labour. October is another busy time for cider makers when production is in full flow and the fruit has been harvested, milled, pressed and stored for fermentation. To help us celebrate Cider Month, one of our producers, Dick Whitcomb, has very kindly arranged to send us a bottle of Temperance Street Cider from the Cat in the Glass in Manchester. Thank you. Now, if I was to start to tell you that an orchardist, a scientist and a brewer walk into a bar, you might think it sounds like the start of a joke. But in fact, it's actually how Manchester's first city centre cidery was born. And in keeping with the theme of this show, the Temperance Street Cider is based in a railway arch shared with a brewery, Beer Nouveau, a short walk from Manchester's Piccadilly station. They accept donated fruit from local gardens and allotments, as well as using selected apples for a series of special vintage ciders. 
I'm, I'm huge on this idea. I've met the Temperance Street cider crowd before and seen all the apples as they turn up on site. And you get this huge array of apples you, that you wouldn't get in an orchard because you just don't know what varieties are coming in through the door. So it makes the vintage even more special. But it's such a community-focused idea that's just unencumbered by the sort of traditional practice we see in traditional cider production areas. So they can really be as creative as they like. And I'm paraphrasing Gabe Cook's entry for Temperance Street Cider here from his book Modern British Cider, which you can buy from camera books. Well, I don't know about you both, but I've got this glass of cider sitting in front of me and my mouth is beginning to um, salivate already. I think Dick recommended that we decant the bottle into a glass for a couple of minutes to release the rhubarb aromas properly. Oh, crikey, I haven't even opened mine yet. Do you think I'd better do that now, then? Here we go. Um, I'll open mine and decant it into a glass, and and, uh, you carry on and tell me what we should be doing. Apparently, the initial aromas that you'll be able to to smell um, are a stressed yeast egginess from the rhubarb's fermentation as a result of the low natural sugars in the rhubarb, but a quick swirl in the glass will help this disappear. I'm swirling now. Um, hang on. No, I, I don't think I've got any yeast egginess, but um, I, I've got to let mine sit for a couple of minutes, so I might have to drink mine after we've heard from Matthew Gibson, but you guys can sip yours because you've been far more organised than me. Um, and we can hear now directly from Matthew Gibson, who's the scientist in the Temperance Street Cider team. My name is Matthew, I'm one of the guys here at Temperance Street Cider, operating out of a lovely railway arch with a bit of train rumbling in the background, deep below the arches just outside Piccadilly Station in Manchester, and I believe you'll be enjoying our quite nice rhubarb cider. This is a blend of apples donated from local gardens, mostly cooking apples, and rhubarb, fresh from what is a waste market garden. These are both fermented separately, then blended together to produce what you're drinking, a nice, low-strength, sharp cider that reflects the qualities of rhubarb wild fermented rather than necessarily sweetened, so it should be quite sharp. And I think this is quite a nice blend that just exemplifies that fact of wild fermented rhubarb. And the apples too, cooking apples mainly, sharp, clean, mostly bramleys, waste fruit from gardens donated to us, to which we return juice back to the donors, all from the Manchester area, locally produced. Wow, so it's great that the apples are extras, so there's no wastage. Locally produced, they give the juice back to the people who provide the apples. That's, that's just all so cool. And of course we can hear the sound of the railway overhead in that clip. That's the cue for us really to get into the theme of this month's episode. So right. it's time for the next interview. We probably should just all have a quick sip of this, uh, this cider and, and give our views as well. I love rhubarb. The house that my grandmother was brought up in had a rhubarb patch out back we found one day. So we always went and got some and took it home and made it into rhubarb crumble. When I was just drinking the cider there, I found it uh, incredibly refreshing and, and actually really enjoyable. And I felt that the, the rhubarb and the, and the apple was, a, was a, a very nice combination. It mm. is a really nice rhubarby taste. And, uh, and just looking on the bottle here, it says, perfect for drinking while watching the sun go down on a hot summer's day. We haven't had a hot summer's day here but um, still perfect for drinking, watching the clouds swirl across the sky, I guess. Before we jump into this next interview, we also want to do a quick shout-out to the launch of Camera's Summer of Pub campaign. Summer of Pub kicks off this week and will run until the last August bank holiday. 
The idea is to encourage everyone to head down to the local and celebrate the first summer without any COVID restrictions since, well, it feels like forever, quite frankly. Yeah, absolutely. And if you've ever needed an excuse to visit the pub, and not that I need one, Camera has put together a map of summer of pub events taking place around the country. So it could be pubs taking part in pub pride, or it could be the Jubilee celebrations in June, or it could be as simple as just like an open mic night at your local pub or a festival in your local area. Um, you can check out all the events near you by visiting summerofpub.camera.org.uk where you can uh, submit your own events for publicity there. Finding out more about the campaign and its partnership with Thank Brew and others in the next month's episode. But before we do that, we're heading to the North Cotswolds where the Ale and Steam Festival will be taking place later on this month on the 27th to the 29th of May. Paul has had the chance to sit down with the festival organiser, Alan McClellan, to learn more about the festival. This will be our 20th collaboration with the Gloucestershire and Warwickshire Steam Railway where we are able to put a beer festival on split between Winchcombe Station and Toddington Station. The benefit for the railway is that people coming to the beer festival have to purchase platform tickets or railway tickets, and most of them come by rail. And the benefit for camera, and particularly our branch, is that we are able to serve beer effectively free of site charge, if you like. We haven't got to pay anything to the railway because we share the cost with them of the marquees and they provide all the food and the soft drinks through their cafe outlets and we supply the beers, ciders and perries. And it works very well. It's uh, what we call it, I think the word symbiotic. <laughs> we, we both benefit as do a lot of the punters because they enjoy the railway they enjoy the steam engines they can travel between the stations with their beer collect another one at the other end and then uh, come back to wherever they started from and hopefully get another one what did the early years of the festival look like has it grown massively from the first years we now tend to get about 45 beers and 12 ciders and perries split over the two stations i'm not sure it was that big to start with it was probably more like 30 beers and maybe six or seven ciders we have fortunately got more room now particularly at winchcombe to get more beers in the beers used to be in a marquee on the platform but now we've got a dedicated function room that we use for our festival instead of using what was a rather cramped waiting room do you consider yourself a beer or a train ticker? Fortunately, it is a family affair as well as beer tickers and railway tickers. Some of the heritage railway guys certainly enjoy a beer or two. And the families that come along as well. A lot of the children enjoy travelling on steam trains. I put it to Des Demure that we're a bit of a nation of admin. We, we love our sort of spreadsheets and forms and that sort of thing. The two sort of, if you're into one, you kind of feel, it almost feels like you verge into another because it's sort of a similar sort of thing. You're, you just have to go into various magazines to find stories of youths in the 50s and 60s traveling further afield for, for train numbers. And, you know, we kind of do the same for beer as well. It's not the first time yes. I've gone somewhere and gone, oh, everything here's new. I need to try get as everything as physically possible. It's not quite the same as standing at the end of the platform, but it feels very much like the. <laughs> the like That's like the I said, put it. In my youth, I did go train spotting, <laughs> and there was a lot of steam engines there. 
uh, in those days. I'm that old. I remember steam engines very well. And I remember getting covered in smuts, in engine sheds, being allowed on the footplates, which I'm sure is against all health and safety regulations. Certainly wasn't then. I didn't mention it, but we at the festival tend to have a theme. Mm-hmm. And this year, the theme is beers from roughly the East Midlands, north of Birmingham, south of Sheffield, east to Nottingham, etc. That that sort of geographical area. Not all the beers will be from there. We will have local beers as well. So that's a way of helping beer drinkers not have to travel, but hopefully they'll find some new exciting beers that they'll enjoy and remember, and then they'll be maybe looking for them in other places. The local beers... They may well have had them. Some people travel quite long distances just because there's a beer festival on. And you don't serve beer on the trains like uh, the Mid-Hants Railway. They do the real ale train. Um, I think the East Lanx does it every now and again. Yeah. That's never taken for yourselves to go, all right, cool, here's some cask rack and here's some casks and we're going to have it on the trains as everybody goes by. No, no, we've never done that. We get our volunteers help out at the two bars and the customers, punters can travel on the train with their beers. The railway are happy for them to do that but we don't actually serve any beers on the trains. Mm. Actually, the distance between Winchcombe and Toddington is very short. Mm-hmm. And quite understandably, the railway don't want us serving beers at Cheltenham or Broadway, which is the end of the lines, because they want people travelling on the trains, mm-hmm. <laughs> not just staying at Broadway or Cheltenham. So what does the local beer and cider scene in the North Cotswolds look like? Who's your go-to? Who's your headliners? Who, what are the names to look out for on that front? Well, in terms of pre- we are very lucky here in the Cotswolds, North Cotswolds particularly. We have excellent pubs in a lot of places who sell a good range of beers. Our local brewers... The prime brewers are North Cotswold and Goffs and Donningtons. They're all in the North Cotswold area. And then very adjacent to us, we've got several other brewers who uh, are probably slightly smaller, Claveland Hind, Cotswold Lion, Battledown in Cheltenham, Carinium Ales in Sirencester, and a little bit further away, Gloucester Brewery. Uh, and I'm sure there are others I've missed. And between them, they do a pretty good range of beers. In addition to that, oh, uh, one I have missed out, uh, it's not actually in North Cotswold, Hook Norton mm-hmm. is probably a more famous one. And we get Otter Isles coming up. Uh, we get Buckham, Y Valley. There's quite a few. We are spoilt for choice quite often. And then our region and North Cotswold pub of the year is the Mousetrap, and that's just up the road at Borton on the Water. There's too many just to mention, but look in the beer guide and, and there's a pretty good choice. That's actually a brilliant formula, classic steam trains and real ale. So just to clarify the process, visitors can purchase a train ticket at Winchcombe or Torrington station and then take the train back and forth, enjoying fantastic real ales and ciders along the way. It actually reminds me of taking the, the RAT, the real ale train, which runs on the Watercrest line out of Alton down in Hampshire and is a fantastic way to spend Saturday evening, especially over the summer months. But if you don't fancy taking the train ride at this festival, you can buy a platform ticket at whichever end is more convenient and enjoy just that half of the festival. Yeah, I, I really liked the idea that you could um, go to two different stations and buy your beer, get on the train, get to the other station, buy another beer, get on the train back again and, and just spend the whole time riding back and forth on, on the trains. Because I've, I've been to 
beer festivals on station platforms before. Uh, there's one in Sheringham in North Norfolk, which I'm not sure if it's a, a camera festival. I think it's organised by the railway itself, but that's a, a, a great one. But it's only at, at one end of the line. And it also sounds like you're, you're spoilt for choice for great beer in the region as well, with uh, shout-outs to the North Cotswolds, Goths and Donington breweries. And, and based on our last interview, I suppose we should probably move on to our We're Only Here for the Beer section of the programme. We heard some great recommendations from Alan on pubs and breweries in the region, but this is the point where we look at our theme and we turn to our copies of the, the Good Beer Guide and talk about pubs that we've either visited or uh, we used to say would like to visit when, when we couldn't go to pubs so much, of, of pubs that are, that are in the Good Beer Guide and, and certainly worth a visit. So... Where, where are you guys starting with? Who wants to go first? My recommendation is the Staley Bridge Buffy Bar just outside of Manchester. It lies on the Cross Pennine route and is just about the start of the Trans Pennine Real Ale Trail. It has a fantastic beer selection and a whole bunch of railway ephemera, as you'd expect. It's a beautiful, beautiful building as well. I'm going to take everyone to uh, Sheffield up in New Yorkshire and, and we're going to visit the Sheffield Tap. It's a beautiful old pub which has um, you know, several rooms. You walk into the, the main bar. Uh, it's a gorgeous room uh, with the bar on one side and big open windows on, on the other side where you can see out onto the railway platforms. Uh, so there's always lots of space for people who are visiting. I've often visited when travelling to or through Sheffield to watch uh, my football team. Uh, and the best bit about visiting the Sheffield Tap, I find, is that they offer uh, two-pint takeaway cartons, which can always make the train journey home after the game just that little bit better, regardless of whether the team has uh, won, lost or drawn. Are we allowed to ask which team it is? Certainly. Uh, I'm a Brentford supporter. All oh, right, so quite, quite away from Sheffield then quite away from Sheffield yes well I'm going to pick um, not quite on a station platform I do I do sometimes go to a pub that's on a station platform sadly not in the good beer guide or at least not in the 2021 edition that uh, that I've got I'll have to check a, a more up-to-date edition and don't forget of course you can buy the good beer guide from camera um, but I'm choosing the railway tavern in Duke Street in Chelmsford in Essex and it's years since I've been here. I, I must try and get down there again before too long. It's, a, according to the book, a, a TARDIS-like corner pub. It's right outside Chelmsford Station. It has got quite a railway theme inside. It's a long and narrow pub, banks of hand pumps at uh, opposite ends of the central bar. And there is quite a small garden, but if you're out there, you can hear all the station announcements. So it's not quite on the platform, but it's kind of as, as good as. It's been a local camera pub of the year it sells craft beers 50 different gins what's not to like really i think i'm gonna to have to join you and i definitely need to check out the southeast of england it's an area i'm very very unfamiliar with and speaking of that sort of general direction we also have another festival within our camera branches that is run on a railway the chapel beer festival in east anglia takes place at the in early march at the east anglia railway museum and claire you had a chance to sit down with brendan southcott the festival organizer on one of their museum trains so let's find out more 
I'm in a train carriage at the Chapel Beer Festival at the East Anglian Railway Museum. This is actually the Winter Ales Festival taking place in March when we're recording this. I'm with Brendan Southcott, who's the festival organiser, also involved with the museum. When we did the first one back in 1991, it was when the very first railways do a beer festival. Bit of a novel idea. A lot of people will know Chapel was the beer festival, not because the railway museum. And the beer festival benefits the museum and vice versa. And of course, the fund, so the money is quite important as well. You can be a part of the museum as well as coming to the beer festival. You know, yeah. we're sitting on a train at the moment. I, I'm no expert in old trains, so, so what it's, is this one? It's not particularly old. It's actually a Mark IIa coach, probably built in the early 60s. It's in the queue to be restored. Um, it's got lights are on and heating sort of half working, but it is to be restored, this one. But it's from the early 1960s. I mean, some of our coaches here go back to 1891. I mean, I, I remember coming to this festival years ago and, and sitting in trains that looked like something out of Brief Encounter, I think. <laughs> Isn't there a danger that by letting people people who are at a beer festival onto trains like this. Unfortunate circumstances, more harm than good could be done. Um, the stress restored coaches, we are a bit fussy about what we put out here, but this sort of coach is designed for being trash based over people using them. Only Mark II, quite a robust sort of coach. And I think during the daytime you can sit in an old cattle truck. We've got cattle vans, we've got cattle wagons to put seats into, we've got a variety of things. So we try and get people spread out a bit, try to get atmosphere. There seems to be much more of a connection with beer and railways, other festivals at railway focused places. Do you see yourselves as something of a trailblazer? I don't think we're quite the first. The Romney Harden Din Church were the very first ones, but we got the idea from that about two years before us. We were the first sort of standard gauge railway. I would say that beer and railways is not a new thing, that's been an old tradition. If you work on the railway, you drink beer, that's been a great tradition really over the years. So it's bringing together two naturally combining occupations. I actually love that this interview took place on a train, Claire. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, as I said in the interview, it feels all very sort of brief encounter, um, you know, getting on the, these old-fashioned trains and, and everything. They, it, Although that festival was their winter festival and it was back in March, they do have a summer festival and that's in September. And I absolutely love the, the Chapel Beer Festival. I've been going to it for years and thoroughly recommend it. You can obviously can get there on the train. Um, it's on, on the Marks Tater Sudbury line, I think. And it, it's a great festival to go to if you love trains, if you if you love beer. And on a summer's day, they have the, the backfield open where all, all the food stalls are. It is absolutely fantastic. Thoroughly recommend it. And thanks to Brendan for taking the time to tell us about it. Certainly it's made me very thirsty for a beer festival on a railway. If we've managed to whet your appetite on that one, check out a railway-themed festival. You can also mark in your calendars for the 17th and 18th of June. The Kentonese Sussex Railway is holding a beer festival. They're down in Tenterton, so that's one worth checking out as well. And of course, over the coming months, Canberra will have a host of more conventional beer festivals taking place across the country. And so you can check those out on the Canberra website at uh, camera.org.uk. Now, we're going to move our attention from festivals to breweries and tap rooms. And for our next interview, Adam is heading down to London to speak with Des Demur. Des is an award-winning beer writer who also leads beer tours along the Bermondsey Beer Mile. So the first railway arches in the world were built in London by the London and Greenwich Railway in the 1830s, which ran over what we now know as Bermondsey. And that's a very popular spot. Who was the first brewery to open, you know, not just in the arches of Bermondsey, but in the railway arches of London, if you will? 
I mean, there were a few railway arch breweries before the current explosion of breweries. I think Freedom Brewery actually began in a railway arch near Vauxhall. Freedom Brewery, the lager brewery that's now out in the rural West Midlands somewhere. But certainly in terms of the kind of current growth of breweries in London, the very first one was the Colonel. And the Colonel opened in 2009, originally in a very small arch in Druid Street, they shared the arch. It wasn't even like a kind of, you know, just their arch. It was originally shared with a cheesemaker and a cheese and ham importer. So uh, they were working on a very small scale. They were making 600 litre batches at a time. And they were, at the time, one of only about 12 breweries in London uh, when they opened. We'd seen a few starting to open again in London towards the end of the first decade of this century. We'd seen Camden Town appearing and Sandbrooks appearing and Redemption, I think, had already opened. Uh, and then and the colonel was kind of added to that because I regularly take people down on tours along those arches. Bermondsey Microbrewery Experience, we call it every Saturday. And people often ask me, why is it that Bermondsey became the kind of centre of microbrewing, craft brewing that it did? And uh, the answer, like so many of these things, is it was partly a kind of combination of convenience and coincidence. I think when the when the colonel set up down there, they were just after a premises that were within fairly easy reach of central London, but in those days were relatively cheap. So it was preferable from that point of view. And also there was already, and this is really the reason why the colonel ended up down there, there was already a community of food businesses down in the arches. There'd been a whole kind of succession of small kind of specialist food businesses that had been gradually driven to different parts of London. So it all began actually around Covent Garden Market, where there were companies like Monmouth Coffee and Neil's Yard Dairy in the 70s, when the market hadn't been redeveloped. So there was a lot of cheap warehousing around there because it was in decline. Then Covent Garden became a major tourist attraction. All the rents went up. So they found new premises in the 90s in Borough Market, when Borough Market was declining. And then Borough Market... Market, largely because of those companies who had this policy of opening up originally just on an occasional basis. They'd open up the occasional Saturday from their warehouses and sell direct to the public. And that proved very popular. And that was the spark that gave the market trustees at Borough the idea to kind of turn Borough into the sort of foodie haven that it is today. But of course, that ended up driving up all the rents. So uh, those companies then were looking for more space, didn't want to go too far away. So some of them migrated down to the arches in Druid Street. So the arches were cheap, they were close close to Borough Market, close to central London. But they were also quite cool as well. So if you've got cheese, a nice cool brick arch is a fairly desirable thing. So um, they were already down there when the Colonel opened. And Evan O'Reardon, who founded the Colonel, used to work for Neil's Yard Dairy. They were the ones, you know, his employers, he was, they knew he, he wanted to set up in his own business as a brewer. He'd, so uh, it was because he was down there and employed by Neil's Yard that he knew that that arch was coming up vacant and then moved in with a couple of friends of his also running businesses down there. So who followed the Colonel on that one? Because obviously somebody then sees, oh, the Colonel, they're doing this. Mm-hmm. Who, yep. who sort of becomes if you will, the early adopters alongside them, because that's when the popularity of the Bermondsey Beer Mile becomes unsustainable. Um, it's yeah, well, into 2014, 2015. So Colonel opened in 2009. Mm-hmm. There wasn't another brewery down there till 2012. So the second brewery was Partizan. Andy Smith, who founded Partizan, is a good friend of Evan. He'd been a chef originally, but he'd worked in the cellar of the White Horse in Parsons Green. He's got a long tradition going back to the 80s of doing interesting beer. He'd moved into brewing working for Redemption, and he was looking for a a new opportunity after Redemption. Essentially, what happened was, Evan, when they moved in 2012, the Colonel, they they expanded their kit, so they had this old 600-litre kit. So Evan gave it away to Andy to start Partizan. 
Very, very generous act, but, you know, there's loads and loads and loads of other examples of London brewers helping each other out, you know, in terms of like selling off stuff cheaply and tipping each other off and things. So uh, Andy originally didn't want to be too close to the Colonel because he thought there'd be an issue with being under the Colonel's shadow. So he uh, looked at other parts of London. But in the end, an arch came up near the Bermondsey Blue in Almond Street, and that just seemed like the best deal. That was 2012. And then the other friends of the Colonel that were down there quite a lot were the two guys who set up Brew by Numbers. So that was the original three. And I think when you have three down there, it kind of stops being a coincidence and starts being a thing. Mm -hmm. So the next few few breweries that started to appear down there, certainly Anspatch and Hobday, and I think Southwark to some extent, they took the decision to move down there deliberately because they knew that there were already breweries down there and there was already that kind of interest that it was becoming something of a beer destination. So uh, we now have a situation where I think at the moment we have eight breweries down there. We have lost a couple, but yeah, I think it's eight at the moment. Of course, Network Rail sold almost all the arches to the Arch Co. You know, that brings its own challenges. And certainly, you know, I'm seeing a few structural problems beginning to form as well. What sort of challenges are facing all these archway brewers and bars in the future? Well, we have an issue in that the Arch Company is hiking rents. Mm-hmm. I think we've we've already seen that process kind of kill a nascent scene. So I've been following this over the years and I was kind of looking for the next Bermondsey um, when I was working on the last edition of my book. And originally I thought it was going to be in Bethnal Green because there were about, at one point, there were about three or four breweries, most of them in Arches, kind of popping up in Bethnal Green. But some of them have been driven out by the Arch Company hiking up the rents. It varies from place to place. At Spa Terminus, there's a slightly different situation where the Colonel are now in that the whole run of arches down there had already been signed up on a long lease to uh, a partnership formed by Niels Yardari and Monmouth Coffee, who've then sublet to the Colonel and to various other kind of businesses that they share aspirations with. And I think they've got a certain amount of protection, at least for the next few years in terms of rents. There's another issue in the sense that some of them are pretty big, but a lot of them that breweries in are, are fairly limited for space. So as breweries expand, and we've already seen a few examples of this, they don't really have room in the arches. And also if they want to keep a tap room, which is you know really important to them because the footfall is down there already, and they obviously make the best margins for the tap room because they're selling direct to the public. If they focus on the tap room and restrict space for the brewery, then, you know, they have a bit of an issue. So how some breweries have solved that is is actually moving out to more traditional kind of industrial sites. What has become the new Bermondsey is actually away from Arches. I mean, the second biggest cluster of breweries now is off Black Horse Lane in Walthamstow, where there's a lot of kind of post-war industrial estates. And there's been a bit of a trend of breweries moving in there that's partly been encouraged by the borough there, by Walden Forest. So... Uh, we now have five breweries there and one big tap room for another brewery. But that isn't, you know, the charming arches. So, yes, moving away from the arches. Okay. Beer and railways have, you know, they've always had a symbiotic relationship since pretty much the earliest railways. And station pubs and buffet bars have been a big part of that as well. Is there any that you have a particular fondness for? Any favourites in amongst them all? Probably the best station pub that anyone's done in London is the Parcel Yard, the Fuller's Pub at, at King's Cross in the old parcel offices there, which is not only a great kind of repurposing of a, of a historic building that was a listed building they couldn't demolish anyway when they redeveloped King's Cross, but it's also 
created a really kind of interesting space there and, and sell some good beer too. Um, I certainly think, I mean, when you mentioned the connection between railways and beer, of course, the other thing to remember is that the coming of the railway was a huge boost to the brewing industry. You know, it was a really important step, I think, in the development of the brewing industry we know today because it meant that breweries could ship beer much more efficiently. It moved from kind of people only ever drinking their local beer to actually the development of well-known brands like Bass and Guinness and places like that. So we're kind of looking at the, the connection between sort of beer tickers and train tickers, and certainly mm-hmm. there's a lot of overlap between the two, you know, speaking there from is, experience. Uh, um, is, is there something in the British psyche of us being collecting in life? Ledgers, you know, we don't like to collect the physical object, but collecting the details, if you will. Are we, are we a sort of nation of admin, sort of? Is that I what? don't know if it's particularly British. I know quite <laughs> a few people from other countries who are just as kind of geeky about <laughs> about beer and about other things as well. And uh, having judged beer competitions in the United States, for example, and seen the, uh, the granularity of like US beer descriptions in competition guidelines, you know, I think uh, there are other countries that actually do the British in terms of uh, being kind of very, very, very geeky about things. So I'm not sure it's a particularly British thing. I mean, I do think it's an interesting thing why there's that, because there is that commonality. You know, we're obviously doing this in connection with uh, a beer festival, come railway festival. There are lots and lots of other examples. There's, you know, a lot of heritage railways have regular beer festivals. The nearest heritage railway to me is uh, the old, the Epping and Ongar Railway, which is mm-hmm. like, formerly the kind of eastern, northeastern limit of the central line. And uh, they do a very very popular festival every year and i've actually done it i did a tasting at that on a train and certainly you know i'm thinking beer festivals on heritage railways you know the two big ones in the calendar is barrow hill roundhouse in chester cheshire i think and then the spa valley railway one in october which which is always sort of wet hopped beers from from Kent and such, yeah, um, that's yeah, that's the yeah. sort of two biggest one. In because I yeah. know sort of people that have been involved in organising it as well. Yeah. So yeah, it, it continues to be symbiotic yeah. even when it's not. Yeah. You know, I think there's a. I mean, there's a touch of nostalgia involved as well. I think for some people, <laughs> I, I think we have to kind of admit this. You know, but I think for some people, that's how it began. This kind of like nostalgia for steam, mm. and also there's an element to which you know the the real ale movement and the interesting cast beer that drove camera was driven by nostalgia too. I think it's fantastic that there's so much cooperation between the breweries. Uh, The only sad part, I suppose, is that the archway companies seem to be hiking up the rents, but that sounds so familiar at the moment with other businesses across the country saying the same thing at the moment. It is indeed, yes. Um, I would definitely second his recommendation of the parcel yard at King's Cross. I use it a lot whenever I'm going home from London. It's definitely worth a visit if you haven't tried it. It's great for people watching, actually. You can sit there just outside it and watch everybody lining up to have their picture taken with the Harry Potter scarves. And I'm told, though I'm not there for the food, if you will, we're here for the beer, I'm not there for the food, they apparently do a decent plate of fish and chips as well. I've actually been to the parcel yard a few times as well. Um, it's definitely a great place to, to work or stop off of ahead of um, meetings or events if you're in London. Uh, and in fact, living in London as I do, um, I've sometimes met my, my family off the train from Edinburgh at King's Cross. And it doesn't take much to convince them after a four-hour train journey to um, pop up into the parcel yard for a pint and uh, sometimes for a meal as well. 
he's, he's absolutely right about the nostalgia of steam and the fact that the real ale movement is partly driven by nostalgia as well. But I think that this month's episode has showed us that we can rediscover the past, like the traditional recipe for Theakston's Dark Miles that we heard about. And we can also build on tradition and create new flavours, like the, the one we've been talking about earlier, the temperance apple and rhubarb cider, which uh, I'm, I have to say is going down quite well. We hope that you've enjoyed our podcast today. It's time for last orders from us here, and there's lots to tell you about. Don't forget, the podcast this season is running monthly, so tune in next month on Wednesday, the 1st of June. Yes, I've had a sneak peek of the lineup, and it's absolutely fantastic. We'll be talking all about celebratory brews ahead of the Jubilee Bank holiday weekend, uh, featuring Fergus Fitzgerald from Adnams Brewery, who has developed a thank brew to celebrate the Jubilee weekend. We'll also be speaking with uh, Old Street Brewery about their big brews and Symbios in Amsterdam about their champagne-style beer. We'll also be moving north to focus on the Glasgow region ahead of their beer festival, so look out for the next episode on Wednesday the 1st of June. So yes, time to talk about beers that we've particularly enjoyed. Simon? Uh, Yes, I've been enjoying a beer from Siren Craft Brew uh, out in Berkshire, and in the case that I ordered was a, a red IPA called Jiggery Pokery. Uh, and I have to say, it went down uh, exceptionally well. The beautiful red colour, uh, everything you expect from an IPA, but on top of that, there was some fantastic flavours of, uh, of citrus and, and orange and a little piney resinous character. So, uh, very enjoyable. Paul, what's your last orders? <laughs> My last orders is Pliny the Elder from Russian River Brewery in California. It's the legendary double IPA that wrote the book for the American West Coast IPA and double IPA. That's roughly the direction I was on my holidays I got to try a couple of bottles of it and it is just glorious it's just this lovely tight bitter character there isn't any flabby bits there isn't any unnecessary sort of overly citric characters it's just so straight down the middle it's it's, it's delicious I've seen a lot of love for Pliny the Elder on, on social media over the last few months and uh, Paul it's definitely the top of the list of <laughs> beers that, that I would like to try so I'm, uh, I'm rather envious of you. I suppose really I, I should have chosen a, a mild as, we're, as we've been talking about mild but I'll have to do that for next month's last orders which I will of course drink during May the, the month of mild so I'm going for a stout instead just to, to prove that I don't only drink stout in the winter um, I do drink it in the spring and the summer as well and this is from the Green Jack Brewery in Lowestoft in Suffolk. Uh, it's Lurcher Stout, which I absolutely love. It's a roast and fruit aromas. There's sort of blackberry in there, raisin, port flavours even. It's a 4.8% and uh, it's, it's often on at our local pub. And yeah, I, I, I do like it at all times of the year, a nice drop of Lurcher Stout. And before we sign off, a huge thank you to everybody that's helped support the show today. Thank you to our editors, David King, Simon Clark and Paul Hadfield, our scriptwriter Jeff Bennett, and to Dick Whitcomb for help sourcing the cider. Thank you very much again. Yes, thank you guys. And don't forget, if you're missing us between podcasts, we'll stay up to date on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at Pubs Pints People. And we've also got a new Facebook page. So do make sure you go over there, like that, um, leave us your comments. And uh, you can find that, of course, at Pubs Pints People on Facebook. I've really enjoyed making my debut on the podcast. Uh, All that remains for me is to say that in true Mild Stroke Cider Month fashion, cheers and wassail. Cheers. Wassail. Cheers. (laughs) 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer52 by going to www.beer52.com forward slash people. That's the numbers 52 in the 52 and covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free. So that's 10 unique craft beers. Beer52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month, they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia... Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5 and 2, dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.